The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, March 3rd at California Crime, a conference on criminal justice policy hosted by Capital Weekly. The topic of today's panel was the politics from three strikes to defund the police and was moderated by Erica Smith, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times. California Crime was presented as part of Capital Weekly's California Conference Series. Support for California Crime was provided by KP Public Affairs, the Western States Petroleum Association, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, Pandora, and the California Professional Firefighters. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate uh, the invitation to do this panel. I'm actually really looking forward to this one. It's um, an issue that I definitely care a lot about. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let our panelists actually introduce themselves rather than me put words in their mouth. Each of them is going to going to humor me and give me one minute so we can get back right to the panel. But we're going to do it in alphabetical order. So if we can do um, talk to Assemblyman um, Cunningham first, that would be great. Thank you very much. Um, Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham, I represent the 35th Assembly District, the current 35th which is all of San Luis Obispo County in northern Santa Barbara County. Uh, by way of professional background, I spent some time doing, uh, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I spent some time doing uh, prosecution work in San Luis Obispo County at the DA's office. Uh, after that, I returned to the private sector, and I've been a practicing criminal defense attorney for the last uh, almost 10 years. Uh, my wife and I have a small two-partner law practice in Paso Robles. And so, and obviously as a legislator, I've been engaged on all sorts of issues in these last uh, five years and change uh, related to criminal justice and criminal justice reform. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Great. We're going to go to Ann Irwin of uh, Smart Justice Coalition, or California now. Thanks, Erica. Great to be here. I'm Ann Irwin. I am the founder and director of Smart Justice California. We work to elect folks to state and local office in California who will embrace meaningful data-driven criminal justice reform here in California. And then once folks are elected, we partner with you to help you reach the right decisions on on the policy calls you're making every day. Um, Prior to that, I worked both in philanthropy through a family foundation and then also was a public defender. Uh, in San Francisco for many years, and I am raising uh, my two little girls uh, in San Francisco. Glad to be here. Thanks, Anne. Um, Rob Sutzman now. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Open California, for hosting us today. Um, good to be here with my fellow panelists. Uh, my name is Rob Stutzman. I'm president of Stutzman Public Affairs. Uh, previously, and somewhat relevant, I guess, to this discussion, uh, my time in government, I was once upon a time a communications director at the uh, California Department of Justice Attorney General's office, uh, worked with Governor Schwarzenegger, ran his communications, and I've been involved as a public affairs and political consultant in this state now for more decades than I, than I care to admit. Uh, relevant at the moment is uh, one of my uh, clients for this election cycle is Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, who is, of course, uh, running for attorney general as an NPP candidate, um, but is also the only prosecutor, career prosecutor running. So look forward to today's discussion. 
Thanks, Rob. And finally, we have Bill Wong. Uh, thanks, Erica and Open California for having this panel. I'm Bill Wong. I'm the political director for the California Assembly Democrats. Um, I'm in charge of helping them all get elected this cycle and to um, convey you know, their priorities for public safety and community safety uh, for the year, as well as having spent um, numerous decades working with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community on uh, issues and uh, their concerns. Great. Well, thank you all again for, for joining us. And, you know, as I said, I'm really interested in this issue, but to just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page, you know, a couple of years ago, California was in a very different place politically than it is today. You know, following the, the murder of George Floyd in, Indian, in Minneapolis, there was um, calls for criminal justice reform um, and also even uh, reallocating funding for police departments. But, you know, times have changed. We had a recent poll by the LA Times and UC Berkeley that found um following a rash of smash and grab robberies, um, that 78% of registered voters say crime has risen in the past year, but 65% saying it's gotten worse in their neighborhood. And another 54% said California is on the wrong track, which is up nine points from May of last year. Um, a lot of this has been discussed in earlier panels today, particularly about the actual statistics and public perception versus the actual stats. But, you know, from all of you, and I don't know who wants to start, but are you surprised at the seemingly kind of rapid shift in public and political opinion on this issue and kind of why or why not? I don't know who wants to start. Maybe you, Bill. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think, first of all, we have to admit uh, what the impact of social media and technology has with regard to making people more aware of things and how algorithm generated, uh, you know, kind of news is out there. So if you have a ring system or if you're on next door or if you're on Facebook, you're going to be seeing a lot more of what's going on than, you know, say a decade ago where news traveled much uh, slower and um, these incidences are less, um, less uh, present in our in our awareness. You know, for example, as an Asian American, I see hate crimes against Asian Americans all across the nation, and it really makes me very, you know, concerned about you know the intensity of it. Um, but that's because it's all on my social media and also probably driven by algorithms. So I'm seeing more of what I'm expecting to see. So not to say that it's not happening and not to say that it's not of a concern. Um, it's to say that I'm not surprised that it is at the top of people's concerns because, you know, it is out there and, and you know, we cannot say it's not. Um, but I guess that the real question is um, what is out there and what context is it in so that we can make the right decisions? Rob, do you have thoughts on that? Take myself off mute. Um, there's, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think we've seen this coming in terms of uh, voter concern slowly over over time. Uh, I think that somewhat became obscured during COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and now as we seem to be moving on into endemic, people are returning to issues or, or looking back around and seeing things are not the way they were um, a couple of years ago. I, I think it, you know, I, this is all linked, I think, to, to the homelessness crisis that people see in their communities. And again, that's something else we can talk about statistics and this and that, but the eye test to people, I think throughout the state is this has not gotten better. In fact, it's gotten worse. And what they are seeing is, is that there is unfortunately crimes being perpetuated by a lot of that population, whether it be petty crimes in order to uh, feed daily drug habits. And these, most of these camps are basically uh, have been over or overridden as open drug scenes. And then you're seeing though some of the most violent uh, and headline grabbing crimes committed from, from one end of the state to the other 
over the past several months uh, are by uh, individuals who are, are homeless or living on the street. So I think voters are starting to connect these things together and don't have and are feeling therefore unsafe. Um, there's, there's sympathy and compassion. That's, I think, also part of the frustration on homelessness. But people don't feel safe being near that population or what that population may be doing uh, in, their, in their communities. And so, you know, until, until electeds can uh, responsibly, I think, show not just talk about how much money they're spending mm-hmm. in the billions, but actually, again, get to that eye test of starting to solve on some of this. Uh, it creates real peril for electeds, uh, whether at the local level or I think even statewide. Assemblyman, do you have any thoughts on that since, you know, Rob mentioned electeds? Yeah, I generally agree with both of the last two comments. I think that there is a perception that the social me- media al- algorithmically, if that's a word, driven like feed system probably does. There's like a feedback loop where you're hearing more and more about this since creating more and more uh, uncertainty. Uh, but I also agree with Rob that it's real. It's present in all of our communities. It doesn't matter where you go in the state of California today. And uh, just for work and to take my kids to soccer tournaments in the last two months, I've been in Southern California and San Diego and Los Angeles and Irvine, of course, San Luis Obispo and Santa Barbara, where I live in Sacramento, where I work most of the week. And it's everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. Like the, and the, and we, we've, we've spent a lot of money on it, I think. I mean, there's a lot of money going out the door. It's like $7 billion or something over the last couple of budget cycles. Uh, but, but we're not seeing the, the problem get really reduced. And so it begs the question, well, you know, how are we spending that money? Are we targeting it effectively? Are we dealing with the mentally ill population in an intelligent way? Are we dealing with the drug addicted population in an intelligent way? So, and I think we've created some... COVID to me, I think in, in terms of like the property crime issue and organized retail theft acted as a bit of an accelerant on that in, because AB 109 realigned, uh, you know, put a lot of felons from the prison system into the local county jails. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the voters pa- passed Prop 47, which made a misdemeanor by definition, any theft of $950 or less. Uh, and then you had zero bail policies for all misdemeanors during uh, during COVID in almost every county. Well, for a while it was statewide and it's still most most counties. So literally you can't detain somebody who's engaging in organized retail theft. Uh, they have to be cited out with a court date that's often four or five months later. Uh, and then they go from Kohl's to Target and Target to Walmart. And, you know, as long as they any one individual doesn't steal more than $950 of things, they're just given citations. They're not. And that makes it very difficult as a practical matter, I think, to to actually uh, address that problem. I mean, you know, we're good about convening task forces, but uh, for that particular type of, of crime that's growing or organized retail theft, you don't really need a tax force. You need to go back and fix the, the, the stacking of these various laws and policies uh, that have, have contributed to a problem that really, like we, we don't have the tools to solve it and it doesn't matter how much money you're putting, putting at it. And, I'd also end with, and maybe this segues into another discussion, but uh, I read the news article about the governor's proposal for care court. And I actually think there, there's a lot of merit in that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there, there, are, there are people that are 5150 and held on a psychiatric hold for the maximum 72 hours. And then they're put right back into the community, right? And they go back to the streets where, you know, 
And that's not a good system for anybody. It doesn't help them and it doesn't help society. Yeah. And I definitely want to get back to circle back to homelessness, but that, that that's the intersection of those two things and how they affect public safety is, yeah, I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, and I want to start with you with this one. And, and maybe this, you can, it sound like you want, look like you want to say something, but I will let you wrap it into this question. But um, there's a few of you talked about Prop 47 and causes of crime. And I know that your work with on criminal justice reform, um, do you, what do you think are kind of behind spi- the spikes in violent crime? And I know that not all crime has spiked, even though there's kind of this catch-all uh, a phrase with that, but, and is it Prop 47? And why do you think Prop 47 has kind of been this big target for all of this? You know, I want to start by um, going back to something, you know, Bill pointed out, I think really aptly. And I think even Rob and to some degree, the assembly member, um, agreed with this, that there is a distance between how people are feeling about crime or feeling about their safety and what the data bears out. We're finding this in focus groups we're doing up and down the state. I mean, it's really actually a sad state of affairs when people feel less safe than they actually are. Um, And what this poses for electeds and candidates is how do you talk with voters? How do you talk with your constituents and potential constituents about how they're feeling and meet them where they are and uh, help them feel a sense of comfort that you will work to make them feel more safe without confirming or validating a false hysteria about crime. It's a very difficult walk for candidates and electeds at this moment in time. And I think, you know, I know that we're working and many folks are working to help them navigate these conversations that is both honoring people's feelings, but also honoring the facts and the data. I think the governor is doing a really good job at this right now. Um, and I hope that other electeds and candidates follow suit. Um, you know, on Prop 47, I from almost the moment um, that Prop 47 became law, law enforcement, particularly local law enforcement, was telling folks that uh, Prop 47 was leading to an increase in crime. And this was, they were telling voters and constituents this at a time when property crime had fallen to all time lows. So what we're hearing now about Prop 47 is not a new argument or a new line of misinformation. It's actually the same misinformation that's been spread uh, since Prop 47 passed. Mm-hmm. Um, the question that I I hope that um, voters and citizens and constituents um, press law enforcement on with respect to Prop 47 is this notion that Prop 47 somehow decriminalized or legalized theft of any kind. And it did not. Theft of any dollar amount is illegal in California. It is a misdemeanor if it's up to $900 that can carry six months or a year of incarceration in a county jail, six months or a year. So the question I think, and and what I hope that folks begin to push their local law enforcement on is, then why aren't you actually working harder to intervene in theft? In San Francisco, for example, where I live, local law enforcement solves less than 3% of all thefts that happen. And when they do arrive on scene, they'll tell you, well, 
we can't we can't do anything about it because of Prop 47. In, you know, you have to imagine a world in which just an incredible amount of discretion for local law enforcement to be using and deploying. You have to imagine a world, you know, DUIs are misdemeanors in California. Can you imagine if local law enforcement told people that they're no longer going to enforce DUIs? They're no longer going to arrest people for driving under the influence of alcohol because it's just a misdemeanor. The penalties aren't quite high enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I hope that there's more conversation about the role that law enforcement is playing and the role that they need to be playing in helping us um, get through this moment. Rob, I know that you're kind of building off the Prop 47. I know that you mentioned your work with um, Sacramento's DA, uh, Emory Schubert, who's running for attorney general, you know, and she's had very strong thoughts on Prop 47 for a long time. Can you maybe address some of the things that Ann was just talking about with that as far as you know, why is this such a, a, a central line that's become so much blame has been heaped on Prop 47? Is it is it just a political rhetoric tool or is there actually more to it, you think? Oh, no. I mean, uh, prosecutors like like Anne Marie and her colleagues feel feel very strongly that um, there's things about 47 that has basically impaired the ability to enforce laws. Um, I mean, <laughs> Anne's and uh, blame the cops and mo- the cops must be the problem is it would be is an interesting defense uh, in this political environment. But you know, what Schubert would talk about is you, you have you have driven misdemeanors to the point where, as as Assemblyman Cunningham already explained, there's no way to hold people accountable because there's there's no door on a jail cell at any point for people that repeatedly commit misdemeanors. So that has contributed to this retail theft problem. Uh, it largely goes under unreport. A lot of it now just goes unreported. Cops can take someone down to the jail, but as the assemblyman pointed out, they basically get a ticket to appear in four or five years, and they're back out there recommitting the crime. So it doesn't. That's not a policing problem. That's a systemic problem uh, in the criminal justice system. Another issue that the prosecutors will talk about what's happened with forty seven is it it has decriminalized drugs to the point where you no longer have drug courts in this in this state where people were actually being given um, uh, a choice to choose treatment as opposed to punishment. Uh, in fact, along that line, something that would have remedied this with a pilot project a year ago, a progressive assemblyman, Kevin McCarty, worked very hard on a bill with his um, district, one of his district attorneys, Jeff Reisick in Yolo County, for a pilot project for diversion uh, on drug crimes and the treatment did not have a single no vote in the California legislature. I mean, so you think about that. You had, you had right-wing senators and left-wing assemblymen all voting for this. Gets to the governor's desk and he vetoes it. Uh, citing what is a, you know, this very progressive dogma that, oh no, you know, we can't, we can't force, therefore it can't even incentivize people into drug rehabilitation. So, you know, that is, these are all the byproducts of things like uh, of what 47 has, has done to just take away tools from, uh, from the criminal justice community. Also, we just find it remarkable that when you have a spike in crime and something obviously needs to be fixed, why wouldn't there be an open mind to consider if there's aspects of 47 that need to be uh, revised to meet the times? You know, Attorney General Bonta was just on uh, for his keynote. He did mention, I think there was a question from the audience about, you know, what the cause of crime is. And he he said he was open to exploring different options. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, including 47. But I mean, 
is there a sense that what is being done right now in California to combat crime is not enough, whether that's coming from police, as Anne was mentioning in San Francisco, which that's been that, or is it a matter of being, you know, law enforcement feeling like their hands are tied? Is it DAs? I mean, you know, the attorney general went on at length about different programs, but is the overall sense that we're not doing enough to combat crime or is that um, our hands, that law enforcement's hands are tied so they cannot do enough? I don't know if somebody wants to to tackle that one. Um, I'll chime in. I mean, I think that one of the things is, is that, you know, stuff doesn't get solved overnight. I mean, there, there's been a tremendous amount of, you know, public investments in addressing these issues. And it may be, you know, months to years before any of that type of stuff has impact. I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes we look at these problems as if it was a problem that just happened overnight. You know, when we talk about the, the, the drug problem, we don't talk about, uh, you know, the Sacklers and the Purdue pharmaceuticals that, you know, spread the opioid epidemic, which led to, you know, the, this, this uh, following epidemic of heroin and meth use that is now afflicting our communities. And, you know, those are business decisions that occurred that resulted in the, 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 the current aspect of homelessness and crimes that are afflicting many of our communities that are drug-based. And so, you know, there are decisions that are made all the time that years down the road result in where we're at. And when the, the legislature you know, both from the right and the left try to address it, it's not going to be easily addressed with just simple platitudes or partisan blaming. Assemblyman, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, <clears throat> Bill mentioned heroin and meth, which is which is interesting. I mean, my community in my district is just plagued by methamphetamine. It's plagued by it. It's all, it's all over the place. I, I've represented in court a, a more drug addicts than I can possibly remember. And in particular with those two drugs, if you're addicted to heroin or methamphetamine, um, for some of those people, and people don't like to hear this, but it, I believe it's reality from my experience uh, working in the court system, defending those clients. Some of them, it takes about a month in jail where they dry out before they, uh, they want to, in the, in the old days, right? Before they want to get help. And so you can build all the programs in the world and get people diverted into it. And drug court was working fantastically well, actually. I mean, it was on the data, it was actually a pretty effective place. You had accountability, a check-in, you had the incentives to get clean, you had the incentives to stay clean, you had the opportunity to have the entire case, you know, expunged from your record, like it didn't even happen at the back end of it. Uh, You know, you talk to some of the judges that ran the drug court programs that they uh, it was actually inspirational for them to do that that judicial assignment because they saw people change their lives. Uh, now all those things are cite out misdemeanors, and uh, you know, and then back to the forty seven thing. I personally think that the theft thing combined with the threshold for theft and definitionally calling it a misdemeanor combined with zero bail for mis- most misdemeanors is a problem that uh, needs to be corrected. And I think, uh, as Rob says, the the drug piece is also essentially eviscerated a drug court program that was working very, very well. And at the time, the voters voted and supported Prop 47. Governor Brown pushed it. Um, You know, we had a a, a, we were in a much different state as a society and as a state with prison overcrowding and jail overcrowding than we're in in now. And so I think it's time to probably revisit this and say, well, I mean, I don't think the law enforcement community or the. DAs are wrong in saying, hey, they've stripped a lot of tools away that we weren't, uh, we, we, 
we used effectively to, you know, a rational public safety policy. You're, you're, the people that are committing violent crimes and predatory crimes, uh, the, I'm talking the real bad stuff, right? I mean, everybody generally agrees those people need to be incarcerated if they're convicted they, after due process rights are given and they, and they get convicted. Uh, but a rational public safety policy would treat a mentally ill person different than that, right? They, they would treat, they'd look more to the underlying mental illness and how do we do that? And it would treat drug, drug addiction much different than than. Uh, international narcotics trafficking, which you know is a much different thing. Um, I do think we've stripped away some tools, and I say that as a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> I mean, I see, you know, it, and what you end up with right now, the system's sort of like a mentally ill person that's homeless. You know, they they kind of have to commit a battery that's serious enough on somebody to kind of be held long enough to then get them into the psychiatric unit, and then and then you know, get them seeing a psychiatrist back on their meds. Um, and the diversion programs that we have in existence are in, in particular, the mental health diversion program, which, uh, w- which works pretty well, but it's, I mean, it's really hard to get people into that. So yeah. I think that's something too, that we need to look, look at on the, uh, what you might call the more compassionate end of it. Like, you know, why, why are we making it incredibly difficult for someone with a documented history of mental illness, 5150 holds, psychiatric holds, et cetera, uh, to get into a diversion program. At the end of the day, if that person's successfully medicated, they are not a threat to society. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a direction I think we need to move the policy discussion as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, just to talk about DAs for a second, and I'm going to move on to homelessness because I do think those th- things are intersected. But um, some of you mentioned, obviously, here in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, the the both the DAs, aggressive DAs are facing a recall election, um, you know, I don't know if you have specific thoughts on how both of them factor into this, but I guess my general question is how pivotal do you think those recall efforts are to this broader conversation about crime and politics in California? So for example, if one or both of them are recalled, does that send a broader signal about where we are or is this, or is this kind of, are these kind of one-offs in each city that, that are kind of just relevant to each, each city? I don't know who wants to start with that one. I'll start, Erica, and I. before I get to that, I just, just want to make sure you asked a question about solutions and, yes. um, you know, the what we are finding in research, and I believe will manifest in the elections this year, is that from a voter perspective, while folks are feeling incredibly concerned about crime, when you dig into what solutions they're looking for, it's actually non-carceral solutions. The voters are not saying, I feel unsafe. And yes, now I'd like to go back to a world in which mass incarceration is acceptable. What resonates with voters, and this is really up and down the state, and you know, the assembly member spoke at length about mental health issues and addiction, particularly with those two categories of um, folks who are are committing crimes that are manifestations of abuse, uh, either mental health issues or drug addiction, voters are saying, we actually want you to invest deeply in getting at the root causes, not in incarceration. So um, that gives me hope, um, particularly for continuing to course correct the criminal justice system in California, that whether or not crime is or some kinds of crime are spiking or not, 
um, people feel concerned and when they're how they're reacting to concern right now is they're asking for elected officials, policymakers to really double down right now on reentry, on addiction services, massively scaling the state's addiction. I mean, Bill, it was pointing out the Sacklers is just spot on. Um, we have a fentanyl crisis that is gonna not going to go away, and it's the moment to really massively scale our state infrastructure of high quality treatment, mm-hmm. our mental health pieces. I know the governor's working hard to address that as well as our folks in the legislature. Um, this is the moment we have the coffers maybe to do it this year um, to begin to really make those double down in size investments in root causes and the voters will support it. Um, so that gives me hope. On the DA recalls, you know, there's no question that whether or not DA Boudin in San Francisco is recalled or DA Gascon in San Francisco in Los Angeles is recalled. Um, yes, it's detrimental to the work. I think what it really does is has a chilling effect, not just for elected district attorneys, but for electeds at any level in any jurisdiction where recalls are available uh, that if you take bold positions or you anger um, folks with resources that you actually may spend your entire term fighting a recall. Um, so it, it has a, those recalls have an impact on criminal justice reform work, but it has a broader impact on democratic society, on policymaking, and whether or not folks can actually have a term to prove uh, the policy positions that they took while running a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm very, very discouraged about the, the recall fever in California and elsewhere. Um, and the biggest manifestations of that right now are the DA races. Rob, did you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, we just asked about the political impact. I, I think it's something that has the attention of people statewide. Uh, what's going on with these DAs, particularly uh, as Gascon, I think, has slipped into more uh, political peril and has become much more on the defensive. Your newspaper, had, I believe, had another story on the front page today. Yeah. Uh, so it's becoming they're becoming definitional um, of uh, and maybe even proxies for what there's a larger debate about here. Have we just gone too far with these prog- with these progressive policies? And it, it extends beyond criminal justice. I mean, we know what just happened in San Francisco on that school board recall, uh, what, just about a week ago now or maybe two weeks ago. So there's, it, it fits into that, that larger frame. Is, is, is it time to pull back um, from how far uh, progressive a lot of policies have, may have gone in this state? Because they're just not seeing any results uh, out of it. So if those, you know, if Bodine's recalled in June, if Gascon, if that qualifies, which it would appear likely, they now seem to be well-funded in this second effort. And if he's recalled in November, it's going to have, I think, a, a chilling effect on the majorities here in, in Sacramento, uh, especially in Los Angeles, where that you know could be very definitional in a mayor's uh, runoff down there, depending on who emerges from June. That's definitely become a litmus test. I had one follow-up for you as well. I think you you told my former employer, the Sacramento Bee, at one point that if a Republican was to win statewide office, you think it would be for attorney general. Um, you know, how do these DA races, do you think, act as a precursor to that election or just about the idea of just uh, of law enforcement, what the role, the the politics, you know, seems what people want, I guess. 
Yeah, I think I think the age, you know, like in the AG's race, the question will be, is this the right, you know, cycle for a candidate like Schubert, who is a DA, who's right now spending a lot of time being very critical, specifically of Boudin and Gascon, talking about things she would do uh, in their jurisdictions, which she would have the authority to do, which the current attorney general has the authority to do. So, for instance, when a police officer is killed in Los Angeles, as one was a few weeks ago, but you have a DA that will not charge the special circumstances uh, related to the fact that his murderers were gang members or that he was a peace officer, that prosecution went to the feds. Sheriff took it to the feds. So they'd be be prosecuted under under, uh, stricter laws. So that's the type of thing she's going to talk about. And that'll be the question in November. Do when it comes to the attorney general's office, is it time to have a real prosecutor as opposed to someone who, you know, refuses to be called the top cop and calls himself the people's lawyer uh, from from that post? And I think these pendulums swing um, back and forth, and it's been some time, but it certainly feels to me that we're at a moment where people, regardless of their political stripes, believe that there needs to be someone to solve this problem, restore order. Uh, that actually has the experience of, of doing so from the side of, of the criminal justice system, from law enforcement, uh, and has had success at it in the past. And it's, I think it's, it's worth noting, you know, no one, I think, is suggesting a return to mass incarceration or anything like that. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of agreement with Ann talks about that, that really one of the big failures here is a lack of focus on delivering resources that most of the rest of the Western world really does well, but for some reason we can't when it comes to addiction services as well as mental health services. Mm-hmm. Bill, I had a question for you too. I mean, just talking about as this public opinion has shifted, I mean, I've noticed and and to your point earlier about Democrats have tried to kind of thread this needle as the governor has talking about, you know, the reality of the statistics, but also acknowledging how people feel here in LA, Mayor Garcetti has done the same, um, you know, and that's been one kind of tack and pushback. There's also been this effort to, you know, as Attorney General Bonta did a, a little while ago, talking about that he takes public safety, you know, seriously and has no desire to give criminals a free pass. Um, you know, are these, do you think, effective political strategies, Bill, um, for, and are they connecting, do you think, with voters or or is something else, is something else out there that probably Democrats need to do to kind of get their message through, do you think? Um, no, you know, I mean, I, I think, well, I mean, from, from my perspective, I run legislative races. So we've got many members that are very well attuned to their communities and well positioned to defend their incumbency based upon, you know, them reflecting their constituency. So running legislative races and holding a legislative supermajority is far different than running a statewide campaign for a governor or for attorney general, just because um, the state as a whole can be a little bit purple, but legislative seats in general are pretty solidly blue. So I don't think that, you know, from uh, from a threat of legislative supermajorities that this issue is going to have that much impact because there are a number of our members who are in these districts and they reflect the sentiment very well. And we have members that have been in law enforcement that are very close to law enforcement, that are very close to the communities and have come up with, you know, a variety of approaches and positions that, that do uh, very closely reflect their 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 districts. Um, from a statewide standpoint, I think you know what happened in the recall election was that um, there were some some uh, relatively effective uh, attacks on the governor for uh, the basis of the recall. But then when the public saw you know the comparison of 
the California governor versus Republican governorships and it became a nationalized campaign, it was pretty clear that nobody wanted that type of politics in California. And when we talk about public safety, I think, you know, the, the easiest defense for the Democrats from a statewide perspective is to say that when you look at the United States, the top 10 states that have the highest murder rates, seven of those 10 states have Republican governors. Seven of those 10 states have Republican control of their legislatures. So if the Republicans are so good at uh, law and order and public safety, why do their states have the highest amount of murder rates in the nation? So when we give them that comparison, I think that there's an entirely different conversation that occurs. Mm -hmm. I, and I, if I may, Erica, you know, you don't even looking locally and at the attorney general's race, um, Amory Schubert has been the district attorney of Sacramento for eight years, Rob, am I right on that? Is it 12? And going on eight years. Yeah. Eight years. Uh, Sacramento's murder rate uh, increased in a way that outpaced the state of California and far outpaced Los Angeles or San Francisco under DA Schubert's tenure. She's been the district attorney there for eight years. Gascon has been in office for about a year. DA Boudin has been in office for two years. So she's going to be vulnerable on the very things that she is calling out what she's using as her foil, uh, Boudin and Gascon, she's going to be very vulnerable because her backyard doesn't necessarily look much better than uh, the portrait she's painting of the rest of the state. You know, I think, um, and, and building on Bill, your comments, I, it, what happened in the gubernatorial recall is that ultimately uh, the state on a statewide stage, the voters were sold a Fox News image of California and the voters said, no, that's actually not the image of California that we agree with. Elder very much stood up and handed that to them and the voters rejected it. And that's going to happen again in the attorney general's race. Amory Schubert is also with her message of chaos and using, you know, really visceral images from um, San Francisco and Los Angeles and elsewhere. She could find them in Sacramento as well. Um, she is reflecting a Fox News view of the world and a Fox News approach to the world. And at the end of the day, when the votes are counted statewide, Californians reject that. Rob, Solomon, just to build off of that and get your opinions on this. I mean, do you think that what's being sold, you know, by Republicans is kind of this Fox News viewpoint, um, even as public opinion shows a deep concern about crime and public safety. And do you think that, you know, this issue is going to be, I want to say the, the ticket is the wrong phrase, but I'm drawing a blank here, but the the avenue for Republicans to be able to, you know, win more statewide offices, you know, gain in ways that after the recall was basically thought not to be able to happen again. I don't know which one of you wants to start. I, I'd like to jump in real quick and answer your prior question first um, as, as, uh, as to the possible effect if the recall of Gascon in particular qualifies and then passes in November. I look at two of the most controversial, narrowly hold the role open for an hour or two hours, narrowly squeak out uh, bills that I've seen in the last couple of years. Uh, there was a Scott Wiener bill that reduced uh, sentencing enhancements for repeat offenders. That got out of the assembly with 41 votes. And if memory serves me correctly, they had the roll open for two hours to get the 41st vote. And then uh, the, uh, I believe it was then assembly member Kamlager's bill 
that essentially reduced a lot of enhancement, gang enhancements for, for particular types of crimes. That one also snuck out with 41 votes. Uh, on the recall, recall on the, the elected DA of Los Angeles County is a big deal just in sheer numbers. I mean, mm-hmm. something like one in five or one in four Californians lives in L.A. County, I think. I mean, so it's a, just a huge chunk of the state. And if that uh, if he is indeed recalled in November uh, next year, when they bring up sort of some of these more contentious legislative proposals, I think they're going to have a lot harder time getting to 41 votes. And, you know, e- even with, you know, as Bill points out, you know, a lot of members sitting in some pretty deep blue legislative seats. Um I don't know that I, I mean, we'll have to see how it plays out, but all the polling that we've all seen and, you know, as COVID fades and the, on the, you know, it was the subsuming number one voter issue for a long, long time, rightly so. It's a very bad pandemic. Um, you know, you're seeing homelessness and crime rise to near the top of the list, along with cost of living and housing. So, you know, I, I don't think it's an issue that, uh, it, yeah. I don't think it's an issue that's going away. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's it's something that Republicans will use to win a bunch of statewide offices or, uh, you know, we're, st- we're certainly not in any position to take back a legislative majority. Let's all be honest about that. Bill's pretty good at his job. He's got a lot of resources. Um, but it's certainly something that I think the, the crime issue and the interrelated homelessness issue uh, is, is something that I think the Republicans, generally speaking, will be on offense with. And I haven't seen Republicans on offense in the last three election cycles I've run in. It's been all defense. <laughs> so I'll just th- those are my political thoughts. Okay. Yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in. So the uh, I don't think Republicans win any statewide offices this fall. Um, you know, Schubert's a, an NPP. Uh, which I think enhances the potential that maybe maybe she could, um, you know. And I, I did, all I can do is chuckle at some notion that voters are going to see her in the same uh, ilk as as the same ilk as as Larry Elder. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, sure, crimes up everywhere in the state. But you know, DAs like Schubert, actually, most DAs, probably over three dozen DAs in this state, have been fighting the policies. Uh, that they would say has contributed to the the increase in violent crime in particular throughout the state, whether that is their effort to sue CDCR to try to prevent them from early release rates that they've adopted. Um, I would think the legislature would be a little concerned. They haven't had oversight uh, of that. That was done under COVID emergency measures. That's all still being litigated. They've opposed things like Prop 47. Um, uh, they've talked about, and then they've tried to do proactive things like the bill I described earlier, the DA Reisig wrote, and the, the governor vetoed it. So, uh, look, I don't think, again, I go back to, I don't see anything in, in even just politically in, in voter survey evidence. I think the voters think the problem are, are DAs and police not doing their job. Uh, they think it's it's policy-driven it's a broken system. Some of it maybe can be put back together now that we're emerging from COVID, but they want action uh, to, to take place. So, look, it's a great environment. Um, I think it'd be a good environment for Republicans. Crime, homelessness in California support that. But the overriding issue why it's going to be a great re- year for Republicans has to do with national politics, has to do with a very unpopular Democrat president, um, has to do with the, the debates within the Democrat Party, you know, playing themselves out in, in, in the open, in the public with voters. Uh, so, 
it's going to be a classic midterm uh, that's going to punish the party in power. That's the Democrats in California. Yeah, I think there's some ex- extra accelerant because of crime and, and, and homelessness. What's that mean for Republicans? Well, you know, maybe a, a few upsets here and there in legislative races. But I don't see I don't see a Republican governor getting elected. I don't see a Republican attorney general. The, the two eight, the two Republicans that are running, neither one of them to me, in my view, is is, uh, is electable. Uh, in November, so it's all in the it's all in the margins when it comes to Calif- Republican success in in California. I wanted to pivot to homelessness really quickly too. I know we've kind of danced around this issue today, but um, given the intersection of those two issues, um, well, two questions. One, do you think as the months go by and we get into the primary into the general election that um, you know, the idea of public safety will become more intertwined with homelessness than it already is? That's the first question. And second, do you think that that complicates the messaging, you know, particularly for um, if there is an advocacy for more tough on crime policies, because it seems like there's a difference between going after somebody who violently murdered somebody versus, you know, the guy, mentally ill person in the tent on a corner. Um, So I don't know who wants to to start with that one. I don't know, somebody, when you've had some pretty strong opinions today about homelessness and that intersection. Well, yeah, it's sort of like I was saying before, I don't want to repeat my other, my other answer, but uh, you know, we don't have a system right now where people that are suffering from mental illness can be detained long enough to get them into services that they need. And if you um, and then be given the proper incentives, you should be able to earn your way out of, you know, I would say probably I would personally exclude serious and violent felonies. But for nonviolent crimes, I think if you've got a documented history of mental illness, you should be, be able to, through a divert program that has the proper incentive structure, which means it's you got to have carrot and stick on the back end. You know, I've counseled many, many clients and through diversion, it's like, hey, man, if you mess up, they're going to put you back in. You don't want to do that, right? I mean, let, let's go. I mean, you can do this, you know? So it's that sort of, we don't currently have those. We've stripped those out. Drug court's basically gone. Uh, the 5150 holds time limited, and then they go back out onto the streets in most cases. So we're essentially just waiting around for these folks to, to do something, and hopefully they don't, but some of them do, uh, that is serious enough that they can actually be held, and that's usually felonies. Uh, and, then, and then they're in the court system, and then they can be connected with the resources that we have, which we do need to augment. I mean, behavioral health treatment courts are good things. Uh, we do need to augment our services that we have for people. And as you pointed out, this is probably a good time to do that. There's a massive surplus. Um, and that's where I think I'm, I'm intrigued and interested in the governor's care court proposal. I want to get down to the nitty gritty. I mean, it literally just and it was announced today. I think I just read an article about it, but there's some good ideas in there. You know, it's a, it's a diversionary process for people that are brought in on a psychiatric hold would be a great start because then you've then you've got them there and a, and a judge and their attorney and the prosecutor can sit down and try to craft something that, that's going to work and get those folks back on the right medication. Um, until we start doing that, man, I don't know that this is going to get much better. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's going to be 10 cities and, and then all of the associated impacts on the community and impacts on, on those, those poor souls that are, that are there. And it's, it probably doesn't matter how many state dollars we push down to counties to get hotel rooms that people don't want to go to. <laughs> that's, I think that's just the reality. 
Yeah. And you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, that uh, the idea of people not wanting to go back to the straight tough on crime policies and having more kind of what the assemblyman was talking about mental health diversion courts. How does, how does this general broader rhetoric or broader political discussion about crime factor into the, the homelessness crisis and, and public safety in that under that umbrella? Yeah. You know, the two are, I think you're right to bring that up in this conversation on this day, the two are inextricably linked. Um, there, there is no question that, when folks see homeless people on the street, they make an aesthetic uh, association that triggers feelings of safety and am I safe? And I think that's, there's something instinctive about that. You're seeing people who are very down and out, very desperate. And so it doesn't, it's not a huge leap to then feel like they may be capable of, of doing something untoward. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that that explains why uh, during times, you know, not that long ago, a few years ago, when crime, literally all kinds of crime across the board in California were at rock bottom lows, yet people were still identifying uh, crime or outsizing their sense of crime. And I do think that was because we were seeing a rise in homelessness. So the two are inextricably linked in that way. And the other way that they're inextricably linked is that when you drill down again with voters, with Californians about what they want the responses to be, they do not want the responses to be carceral. As with crime driven by addiction or mental health issues, folks want the state to invest in services and housing for homeless people. Mm -hmm. Um, That shows up in the polling over and over again. Sure, there are variations. Um, They want there to be more places for them to go and they want there to be services to get at their underlying root conditions and and jobs. They want them to have jobs, be able to earn a living. And so those two things, homelessness and crime, I think will be um, their fates are interconnected um, and that will manifest in elections and on the campaign trail and the rhetoric that goes along with it. Bill, Rob, did you have anything to add to this? Um, I'll, I'll just add like one thing I, you know, I, and I, I, I think that the problem is real and I think that we have to address it. I think the, the, the challenge for a lot of us is that we get distracted with, you know, the, the rhetorical battle that's out there. You know, if we weren't so involved in, you know, reelects and partisan fighting, whichever way it goes, we could be more focused on, you know, increasing psych beds. We could be more focused in doing those types of things, but, you know, the political sweepstakes are so overwhelming that a lot of times it's a very, you know, source of distraction from us actually solving the problems that are that are that Californians are facing. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got one question from our audience so far, and please submit some if you're out there and listening. Um, and this is, I guess, to all of you. Um, how do you feel the uh, recall of the um, district attorney in San Francisco is going to turn out, assuming it qualifies? So. Well, I- Go, go ahead, Ann. Sorry. Oh, sorry, Rob. Um, the, you know, name, name an elected official that, that given a recall scenario would absolutely survive it right now. I mean, it really is. It's a very, very difficult kind of vote for an elected to survive. 
it's an up or down. We all know if, if there were a vote tomorrow to recall Biden, he'd probably lose that vote. Um, and many of the elected officials here in the state of California at the local and state level would as well. So I'll just put out there that it's a very, very hard thing. Once a recall is on the ballot, um, San Francisco, San Francisco's recall process is different from the statewide process in that there are not other replacement candidates on the ballot. It is actually just a straight up or down question. Uh, it makes it very difficult for someone like D.A. Boudin facing a recall in that environment to create an opponent. Uh, so essentially you're running against the most perfect ideal replacement district attorney. And so I'll just say that this is gonna be um, a difficult fight. Rob, you have something to add? I, well, I, I agree with Anne's analysis. Um, no, I think, she I think she explained it explained it very well. I'd be surprised if he survives it. Got it. Uh, and it looks like there's um, one other question. I think I'm <laughs> answering the right ones. Um, I think I'm not supposed to answer it. Sorry about that. Uh, Zoom, you think I'd figured out how to use it by now. Okay. Can someone uh, discuss law enforcement efforts against cartels and drug rings uh, pushing massive amounts of meth into the state cities? It's another listener question. Uh, I don't have a lot on that. I, I know that um, the governor has a proposal in the budget to, to address that, the, the drug trafficking and um, the entry of drugs into the state, but I don't have any specifics on that. I think it's a great question because um, there, there does not seem to be much noticeable uh, interdiction going on. And the, the retail sale of drugs, which is so much in the open, and it's not just a tenderloin thing. I saw it on in the afternoon on Ninth Street in Sacramento the other day coming out of an optometry appointment. Um, you know, it, it, it is so flooded the streets, but somewhere behind all that, of course, um, are cartels our drug kingpins. And that's a, there's a good question about, cause that takes, that takes a high level organized um, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. The attorney general has a the department of, of law enforcement that, you know, helps with a lot of those tasks for us. But this is also a good question. I think the federal law enforcement too, why we're not seeing more of that given what's happening uh, with, with this inflow into the state. Okay. If there any other questions out there I can ask, but I have, you know, a couple more of my own and, uh, oh, we have one more. Um, can you talk about the financial interests behind the recalls? I don't know if Rob or, or uh, Bill want to tackle that one. I can. Okay. And uh, I've studied the disclosures uh, quite a bit. Um, so in both uh, San Francisco and in Los Angeles, the uh, recall efforts are funded um, by and large by Republicans. Um, and in San Francisco, that's particularly notable given the small uh, population of Republican voters we have in San Francisco. In Los Angeles, the largest donors to uh, the Gascon recall um, have all been some of the largest donors to the uh, recall against Governor Newsom. Um, so it is absolutely accurate to say that the recalls in both places are funded by and fueled by Republicans um, in two places that are overwhelmingly Democratic counties. Mm -hmm. um, these are not 
uh, grassroots endeavors, as um, Tim Molina, who asked the question, pointed out. Um, in San Francisco, the signatures to get on the ballot were all paid signature gatherers. Um, this is actually distinct from the school board recall, I will say, in San Francisco. And in Los Angeles, um, you're seeing very much the same thing. I mean, this is this is the formula with recalls is it gives an incredible amount of power to people with deep pockets. Uh, if you have the money to get something on the ballot, and this is true of our initiative process as well, then you can get something to qualify on the ballot. It is a formula. And um, this is another one of the things that I think recall should be troubling to all of us, no matter what party or side of the aisle you're on. Um, it is really disrupting a democratic process and giving outsized power to money um, in politics. Robert, I want to give you a chance to respond. And we only well, have a few I, minutes. Say, uh, there's a lot of Democrats that have given money to the Boudin recall in particular in San Francisco. I've talked to some of those donors, uh, people who are lifelong Democrat, you know, give money to Democrat candidates. Um, you know, one guy said, look, I live in Johannesburg. I have a 24 seven guard out in front of my house. I want my city back. So I, you know, I think San Francisco in particular, it's a case of a city that's just exasperated with the conditions of in which people are, are living, are living under. Um, and you know, if it's really a Republican fueled effort and a sinister Republican pot, I don't think the people of San Francisco, uh, will go for it. So we'll see. Okay. Either one. Yeah. I, I would just add on the on the Gascon recall in particular because I've studied that one or followed that a little more closely. Uh, most throughout most of California history, uh, most elected DAs, whether they're Republican or Democrat, uh, view their job as enforcing the law that's on the books and uh, making intelligent judgments about how to deploy their resources. In so doing, I think Gascon is different than that because he, there are parts of the laws that are on the books that he has publicly stated he is not going to enforce. And, you know, if you take that approach to a job, I, I don't think it's a huge surprise that as you see crime and homelessness and all these issues spiking, that the voters aren't super happy about that. So I don't know who's funding who. I haven't really followed that. Don't, don't much care. But I think they're, <laughs> it's not a surprise to me that they're trying to do it. Bill, you get the last word if you want it. Uh, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Well, thank you all for taking time out of your busy schedules to, to have this discussion. It's been super informative to me. And um, I think that's it. Well, thank you all. Good to be with you thank all. Thank you very much. Thank you all. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.